As I noted just a little bit ago in the introduction, we continue on in now verse 41 and 42. We begin with the crowd grumbling over Jesus' statement that I am the bread of life. I am the bread actually that came down from heaven. And I want you to notice why they grumbled so much is because of verse 42. How in the world could you come down from heaven when we know that your father is Joseph and your mother is Mary? We know who you are. We know your parents, verse 42. Don't tell us that you came down from heaven. You got earthly parents like the rest of us. And so they started grumbling amongst themselves. The irony here is they didn't know the whole story of the virgin birth. Okay? That Jesus was Joseph's adopted son. Okay? Not biological son. They did not know that. So they grumbled about that. So, knowing this, he says, stop grumbling in verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. Kind of like a rebuke. But you know what that verse 43 demonstrates? That they're responsible to believe. Human beings, men and women, are responsible to believe. And this demonstrates that. But instead of receiving, instead of believing the truth that Jesus was teaching, they huddled around one another and disputed over what he was saying. You get the picture? They huddled to dispute instead of receiving the truth. Which teaches us this. It's, it's a lack of evidence. It's not, excuse me, it's not ever a lack of evidence that keeps one from coming to Christ. It's unbelief that keeps one coming to Christ. He was giving evidence after evidence after evidence. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was their unbelief. And that's why they grumbled. So we see this unfolded before our eyes in verse 41, 42, and 43. And now, verse 44. And we're going to hang on this verse for a little while. Notice what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father does something in them that, that brings them to me. It's called drawing. So what Jesus does in verse 44, he, he gives a mystery. All of a sudden, he kind of switches gears on them a little bit. If you're preaching the gospel and you want people to trust in Christ, how many evangelists will bring up verse 44? Not many, okay? You got that? But he's evangelizing. This is an evangelistic service, okay? Jesus is not pulling punches, but what he's saying is, though, I'm appealing to you. I'm using the illustration of you are the bread of life. I want you to know something. There's a mystery going on here, and I want to say it like this. That means behind the scenes, so to speak, where we cannot see and where we cannot hear, God is doing a work of drawing sinners to the Son. You preach the Word. You be accurate and faithful to the text of the Bible and leave the results up to God. You see that? But what's this drawing like? And I want to take a few minutes to kind of explain that, if I can, okay? I'm going to try my best. 
And it was a lot of commentaries, a lot of just looking at the language, but there wasn't a whole lot there because it was just verse 44 and other, other parallel passages of Scripture. What is this drawing like? First and foremost, it's general. In that, this. It's a powerful act of God upon the sinner, bringing him to the point of giving up resistance to Christ. It's a powerful work of God. It's a powerful action of God whereby he does a work upon the sinner, bringing that sinner to the point whereby he no longer resists who Jesus is. See, natural man in his natural state is completely unwilling to come to Christ. He is born with a sin nature, and that is one of the characteristics of that sin nature. And in his natural sinful state, doesn't want to come to Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, he is dead in his sins, right? He's dead in his trespasses. He's spiritually, he's not physically dead. He's dying, okay? We, we get old and we die. But spiritually speaking, he is separated from God. And that's why Romans 3.11 says, and no one seeks after God. And I love Ephesians 2.1 and 2 because Paul says, that's who sinners are. And by the way, that's what you were like. And in verse 4 in Ephesians 2, he says, but God. But God. In other words, what's the difference between the spiritually dead person who doesn't have a relationship with God, that is dead in their sins, and one who is alive in Christ? What's the difference? God. But God. He's the difference. So first and foremost, we think about drawing When the Father draws people to the Son, it is the powerful act of God upon the sinner whereby he causes the sinner to give up his resistance to Christ. But it's necessary because he, a sinner, is dead in his sin. And because according to Romans 3.11, being dead in sin, therefore a dead person does not seek after God. And so God draws. Second of all, this drawing has a volitional aspect to it. A volitional aspect to it. By volitional, I mean the will. The will or or the affections, desires. Okay? What, what, What does this mean? Here's what it does not mean. It means that God is not violently compelling a man or a woman to come to Christ. Okay? It doesn't mean that he's taking man's will by force or making him reluctantly coming to Christ. Don't That picture is untrue. Take it out. He's not twisting his arm or do, to get him to do something he does not want to do. Okay? No. Here's what's going on. He gives a new heart. And that new heart wants to come to Christ. That new heart has new desires and new affections. And those new desires and new affections are directed towards Christ. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's what the theologians, it's what we, we call the doctrine of regeneration. You must be regenerated. You must be made new. Paul says to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are new creatures in Christ. We see this embedded all the way back in the Old Testament. If you want to, for example, let me read Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Talking about the future. The prophet Ezekiel speaks the word of God and says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. From stone, which is, get the picture, unmoldable. You cannot take a thing, a granite or a stone of any kind, and sit there and put pressure points on it and and mold it into anything. It's just hard. It doesn't move. So he gives you a heart of flesh, which is moldable, shapeable. He goes on, in other words, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do verse 26 of Ezekiel 36? Well, here's how, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. The means by which God will do it is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is regeneration, which is what Jesus said, you must be born again. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And, and... Here, here's the result. Here's what it's going to look like. Just a little glimpse of what it's going to look like. This last phrase of verse 27, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Careful. Intentional. A wanting to. You're thinking about it. It's your desire. It's your drive. A new creature in Jesus Christ has that drive to surrender to Christ and do what he says. And Ezekiel prophesied this. And it involves the church. I also believe it involves the millennial kingdom to come. So first, in general, to act of God upon the sinner, whereby he brings the sinner to the point of giving up resistance. And then second of all, it has an volitional aspect to it. Where God is, is bringing the sinner to himself. He makes him alive. And all this is a mystery. All this is going on in the heart of a life of a person until they wake up to Christ. They don't know this is going on when they trust Christ. They didn't know this was going on when they walked down the aisle to receive Christ. Or when they held their hand up to trust Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. Or at the local church level. They didn't understand this. Later on, here's why people don't understand this. Because they're never discipled. Because preachers are afraid to cover passages or verses like this. But now, as children, as babes in Christ, we begin to grow. And as we get discipled, we come across passages like this. So now we're able to look back and go, wait a minute, God. You have begun to work in my heart before I was convert- before I even understood it, before I was awoken up to Christ. You, you were pulling me. You were drawing me. You're the one that lovingly, graciously put it in my heart to follow the Son. Yeah. Thank the Lord. I just want to say this. It's all of grace. Beloved, it's all of grace. In other words, he makes those who are unwilling, willing. Think of it this way. He does not take away our responsibility to believe. But he makes us alive and gives us new desires and new affections so that we believe. what we call the doctrine of regeneration. Isn't this beautiful? It's how really John began his, his, his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Who were not born, who were born, excuse me, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But God, God doesn't move in such a way as to drag us and to, and to beat us into submission and things like that. No, no, no. He does it in such a way we don't even recognize it up front. We don't even recognize it. 
Third, there's an intellectual element to it. Not just volitional, there's an intellectual element to this. Look at the very next verse, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. A quotation, or a paraphrase, I should say, out of Isaiah, I think chapter 54, verse 13. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There is the intellectual aspect to this. God does not bypass the brain to get to the sinner's heart. Christianity is not a thinkless religion. It is not brainless. It involves the volition, the will, and it involves the intellect. The Father draws by what? Illuminating the mind, giving understanding. That if anyone understands and confesses Christ, it's because they have been taught of God. This is illustrated. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 for a minute. There's a a phrase in Peter's confession that we often just gloss over. Just gloss right over it. Matthew 16, 17. Give a little bit of the context. Back up to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Actually, what I'm reading here is on the tail end of chapter 6 where we're at in the Gospel of John, if you want to kind of match these two up, okay? A lot of people have left, at this point, a lot of people have left Jesus. And now now he turns to his own 12 and says, well, who do you say that I am? These people are leaving me. What about you? And that's where we have Peter's great confession. Verse 14, their disciples respond. They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, I didn't ask you who they say I am. Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, and Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the God. He nailed it, didn't he? And all God's people said, amen. Yes, confession. But then notice what Jesus says immediately after that in response to Peter's confession. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because you got it right. No. Because you're smart and you figured it out on your own. No. Here's the answer. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter's confession is based upon what the Father revealed or taught him. Amen? I thought that was a beautiful illustration of where we're at in our text in John chapter 6. Go ahead and turn back to chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. And as you're there, I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians because I want to... Paul mentions this again, this concept. And he gives a little bit more insight into it as the Spirit moves him to write to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Actually, if you want to turn there, go right ahead. Okay. We talk about God's drawing and the intellectual, intellectual aspect of God drawing the sinner to himself. 14, 15, and 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's listen to this. Paul says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, a natural man to Paul in that context is an unbelieving man. Okay? For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerning. Okay. But he who is spiritual appraises or discerns all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Now notice what he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. But I want you to understand, what's the difference between the person in verse 14, the natural man, and the one in verse 15, the spiritual, the one who praises things spiritually? Go to verse 10. For to us God revealed them through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except for the Spirit of the man which is of him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Verse 12, are you ready? Now we have received. We have received not the Spirit of the world, not the Spirit of the natural man, but the Spirit who is from God. Why do we receive it? Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which we speak, which we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom. We don't need the wisdom of the world. We don't need man's reasoning. God's word is sufficient. But in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Do you get what's going on here? Paul says you have the mind of Christ because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's part of being regenerated, part of God's God's wooing us or drawing us to the Savior is because he begins that work of the Spirit whereby he begins to mold and shape our hearts. Think of the heart, not the physical heart, but the core of your being. And in that core of your being, you find your affections, your desires, and your will, and your intellect. And it's all in there, what the Bible calls the heart all those things are there. And so when God's drawing you, he's drawing you through those things. There's an intellectual aspect. There's a volitional aspect. You see what's going on here. It's a work of the Spirit inside the sinner, bringing that person to Christ. Oh, 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 beloved, just grasping all that God does for sinners. It's not just that. Jesus died on the cross for me. Yes, that. And that's primary. I mean, that's the nail of it. But, but that's not all of it. That's not all of your salvation. God sends the Spirit to awaken you up to the Christ on the cross, to awaken you to his own righteousness, to awaken you to your own sinfulness. And you need a righteousness that's alien to yours. It's alien to this world and this universe. A righteousness that comes from heaven. He's called the bread of life. And that's why Jesus says, you must eat of me. Let's go back to our main text in John chapter 6 and continue to move forward. Verse 46. Verse 46 is simple. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except, there's one exception, the one, that should be capitalized one, who is from meaning himself, Christ. Okay, He's reiterating what John started out, remember, in chapter 1, verse 18. There's only one who has seen the Father, that's Jesus. And so that's who he's referring to in verse, verse 46. So verse 47, he says, based on that truly true, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. He comes back to the main point. He's the main point. Salvation and faith in him is the main point. He who believes, verse 46, right? He who believes that the Son is from the Father, that he is from the Father, and they believe that, that's the main point. And then verse 48, he again reiterates the analogy once again that he is the bread of life. I am the bread 
of life. And then he compares it in verse 49 with the man in the Old Testament from Exodus. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread. And when you read the word this, he might be saying this, pointing to himself. This is the bread that comes from heaven. That bread that Moses gave you was temporal. It was your physical sustenance. But I'm coming. I'm the bread from heaven. And this bread is for eternal life. It's not for physical sustenance because your physical body is still going to die. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to conquer that death because I'm going to conquer it. And therefore, all who believe in me, they're going to conquer death. Because they're going to die, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise them from the dead. Wow. So he references the man in the wilderness to draw the comparison and contrast with Moses. Because earlier on, they wanted a sign from him to have manna, even to feed more than Moses. Remember, they were comparing him last week. We saw that earlier on in this same dialogue. As we move forward, look at this. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And here's where it gets tough. Here's where it gets tough. If anyone eats of this bread, uh uh-oh, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world, here it is, is my flesh. Whoa, time out. The guy's going nuts here. At least I think that's what the crowd's thinking because look at verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, this was a shock. This was abhorrent to the Jews. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 9 verse 4 it says this, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Wow. But that's if because the crowd was taking him literally. Literally. However, what Jesus is doing, he's giving a graphic illustration. In a graphic way, he's driving his point home that his death is the death that they need. Not the sacrifice of animals back in the Old Testament, but it's his sacrifice. This is screaming the sacrifice to come. That's what he's doing here. This flesh is going to be sacrificed. This flesh is going to be the one that's going to be cut up, right? Thorns, whips, right? Beaten. This, this, is what, this flesh is going to die. This blood is going, the, the, the blood from this sacrifice, me, he's saying, this is what you need. So in a vivid, shocking language, he says, you've got to eat. But then after knowing and seeing them struggle in verse 52, even arguing with one another, huddling up again, they're huddling now he's making us mad. Not only did he claim to come from heaven, and we know his mom and dad, but now he's saying, he teaches cannibalism, and not only that, we've got to drink blood. We know we're forbidden that back in Genesis. Verse 53, he ratches it up again, Jesus. This is amazing. If you're really wanting to gather a crowd and have a lot of followers, you would not go this direction. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of his blood, and he adds something else, and drink his blood, 
Here, he adds it right there. You have no life in yourselves. Verse 53. In other words, trust him with all your heart. One must trust in his sacrifice. One one must receive his death as the atoning work necessary for eternal life. That's the point he's driving home. It's no longer the blood and the death of animals. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he's he's saying, it's this sacrifice that's going to save you. All the sacrifices, all the blood that was shed in the temple, when you brought those sacrifices, when you slit their throats and you sacrificed them, all that was for was a foreshadow pointing to me. Oh, I want you to eat and drink of me, spiritually speaking, for eternal life. So you must trust in the sacrifice of Christ. You must receive his death as being the atoning work of Christ. As Augustine said, I love this short, people when they consolidate things, believe and you have eaten. End of quote. Quote, believe and you have eaten. I like guys that could just capture it like that. I can't ever do that. You know me. It takes me paragraphs to explain something. But these guys just gelled it down to that. Augustine did a great job of that. Verse 55, for this reason, for my flesh is true, for this reason, know the word word for, F-O-R, for this reason, because of verse 54 and 53, for this reason, my flesh, this body, is true food, and my blood is true drink for eternal life. I love verse 56, because the tense is now continuous. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Wow. The habit of feeding on him. In other words, once you taste of who I am, so to speak, once you understand my atoning work and you taste the grace of God that is in the Son, the gift of eternal life, you're going to go nowhere else. You're not going to another field to eat. You're a sheep now, and you know the pasture where you're going to get your, your, the, 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 the grass from. And you're going to go to no other shepherd. You're going to go to no other field than the Word of God. That's why it's so important, as a little side note, for the men of God, for preachers and teachers of the Word, to be honest and straightforward with the text. Because the sheep know where to go. We've got a lot of people who thinking they are sheep, and yet they're not being fed the true word of God. And that, and that didn't happen overnight. It happens over a long period of time. So gradual that we don't even notice it anymore. So the tense in verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. I love that word abide. It's become a famous word later on in the gospel of John chapter 15. He who abides in me. But it says that word means remain. He'll remain. He will continue to trust me. He'll continue. In other words, he's saying this belief, this faith that truly saves, the object is me and it will, and you will persevere in me. In other words, how about this? When you sin, the spirit who indwells you will convict you in who to go to. It's the foot of the cross. 
So this gospel is not just for the sinners. It is to draw unbelievers to Christ. But it's even for us today on a daily basis when we blow it. Okay, oh, I sinned. I, I got to get better at that. I got to get better at not sinning. No. No. The power not to sin lies in the Savior. Lies in the gospel. Now I understand I'm like you. I don't want to sin. You don't want to sin. When we find ourselves sinning, we, we want, I want to stop. I know I need to stop. But the power to do that does not rely in myself. But in coming back to the foot of the cross and saying, okay, God, you saw that. You heard what I just said and it was sinful. Okay, God, you just heard those thoughts in my mind. No one else did, but you heard those thoughts and they were not honoring to you nor to whoever I was thinking about. They're sinful. So what do you do? You go to the one who died for those sins or for that sin right then and there that you just committed. Because you've got to remember, when Christ died for your sins, he died for all the sins you will ever commit, past, present, and tomorrow, or this afternoon, or next week. You see that? <laughs> I hate to, I'm, I'm talking about myself here, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping you all are in the same boat with me. <laughs> so. so it's continuous. And then verse 57 and 58, Jesus comes back to mission, so to speak. He comes back to the sense of mission. As the living, and he brings the Father back into it now. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Notice that the Father sent the Son there, the first phrase of verse 57. He sent the Son on mission. And that mission is to to gather those the Father is giving to the Son. We learned that last week. We learn again in this passage. That's what God is doing. That's God's mission. And so when you get to a Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, we are involved in that. So when we are preaching the gospel, when we are preaching Jesus, Jesus preached himself, he is the gospel, that we know that as we are preaching the gospel, our responsibility is to be honest and straightforward with the text knowing mysteriously, I can't use a better word, I don't know a better word than that, behind the scenes, God is doing a work that we cannot see in the life of sinners. And there's people out there that I'm preaching to that the Father is in the process of bringing to the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? What does this simply mean? If God, you're working behind the scenes as a sinner... I just got to cry out to you. I need to plead for mercy. Knowing that you're doing this, oh God, teach me, show me, illumine my mind, give me understanding. Think God will ever turn a sinner away from those cries or those kind of prayers? No. Actually, those kind of prayers reveal that the Father's working in that person. Amen? Listen, those who cry out to him and plead for mercy will not be disappointed. They will never be cast out, and they will be raised up on the last day. Amen. Three little things here. For the preacher, what does this mean? It means be faithful to the text. Listen, we don't have to invent ways to do things. 
We don't have to be clever in our speech to win souls to Christ, but preach the word. The Spirit of God takes and uses the word of God to draw people to the Son of God. Amen? For the leaders of the church, for elders, deacons, leaders, the worship service. It simply means we don't have to design a worship service to appeal to all these other things. Okay? We don't need to smoke. We don't need the lights. We don't need all that kind of stuff. I should say this. Forgive me. God does not need all that stuff that we can come up with to try to provoke and conjure up men and women to come forward to to receive and accept Christ. Because it is an internal work of God, there need not be any external, what's the word, stimulation of the emotions. When the Spirit convicts the sinner, we'll learn that in chapter 16. Oh my goodness, that's going to come from within. So as when, like Jonathan Edwards is preaching, there's people crying out in the middle of the sermon, save me, I don't want to go to hell. Lord, save me. And they're just crying and they're weeping. And there's a moment where he says, shh, let me finish my sermon. He did. It's recorded that he did that. But then people just being convicted by the Spirit. Why? Because I believe it. Because men and women who trusted the Word of God at face value. At face value. They know according to Ephesians, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is what? It's alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. So, Pick up the Spirit's scaffold and preach it, teach it. But we live in such a day and age where we think God needs all the help in the world that we can give Him. That's why you go to worship services. It's contemporary, it's traditional, it's everything in between. And we're trying to appeal to men's and women's wants or preferences. And we don't go to church for that. And then there's you. Know this, when you are sitting down with somebody and sharing the gospel, which I hope you pray and try to at least a number of times throughout the year, that you know as you're sharing accurately the gospel, you're calling men and women to repent, or that person in front of you, family member, co-worker, a neighbor, you're sitting down with them. You know mysteriously God is working in people. All we're responsible to do is to preach the truth. Be honest with the text. Be true to the text. We're never called to save a soul. The preacher, the evangelist, never saved a soul. It's always God. We are simply the means through which and by which God draws sinners to himself. You see, God saved us to be involved in the Trinitarian work of salvation. So it's not just the Trinity. It's the church along with the Trinity, being used of the Trinity to get the gospel out. You see that? That's the church's call. Let us be found faithful. But we can now go boldly. We can go with confidence and courage. It doesn't matter how the crowd responds. We keep going. We keep preaching. We keep sharing. We keep teaching Because we know God's out there doing his work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we love you. God, just takes the weight off of our shoulders. The, The success of the church does not rely on our shoulders. You just call us to be faithful.
Paul told that to the church at Corinth. Just maybe a good steward is found faithful. Faithful with the truths of your word. Faithful with the gospel. Knowing that mysteriously you are behind the scenes calling men and women to yourself as we appeal to their will. As we appeal to them intellectually. God, we know that you are the one doing the work. We are your mouthpieces. And I just want to say this, Father. It's an absolute honor. An absolute privilege to be used in the smallest way by you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you.